0: inner voice a heartfelt chat with dr fujan
1: hello everyone welcome to the inner voice podcast a heartfelt chat with my guests and you beautiful listeners and viewers i'm dr fujan Zain. i'm a psychotherapist an author and the originator of the awareness integration theory and it's so good to be with you today I am excited and honored in this episode that I get to chat with Dr. Stephen Borges. He is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He is a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and professor emeritus at both University of Illinois and Chicago at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He served as president of the Society of Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Association of Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has published more than 400 peer-reviewed papers across several disciplines, including anesthesiology, biomedical engineering, critical care medicine, ergonomics, exercise physiology, of gerontology, neurology, neuroscience, pediatrics, psychiatry, psychology, psychometrics, space medicine and substance abuse. In 1994, he proposed the polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behavior and emphasizes importance of physiological state and expression of behavioral problems and psychiatric disorders. He is the author of multiple books and his latest book with his co-author, his son, Seth Orgas, is the one we're gonna be talking about, our, our polyvagal world, how safety and trauma changes. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I have. I've learned so much reading this book and I really hope that you get the book and uh, read it thoroughly on another note subscribe to my podcast and my youtube channel connect with me through my website fujansane.com if you are interested in learning more about awareness integration please go to awarenessintegration.com if you are a therapist or a life coach anywhere in the world and wants to be certified please let me know and connect with me through my social media share with me your thoughts and love to hear from you. Now, without any further ado, here
0: is Dr. Stephen Borges. Break free from the forces holding you back. Get the life you deserve. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, decrease depression, and start living your full potential. Thousands have used Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory, an evidence-based behavioral health breakthrough with incredible life-changing results. Getting rid of past trauma, having fulfilling relationships, increasing earnings, and living their best life. Now, the Fujian app is available to everyone. The app is Dr. Fujian Zane's Awareness Integration Theory in the palm of your hand. Download the Fujian app today.
1: Dr. Stephen Porges, it is such an honor to have you on my show. Welcome.
0: Well, thank you, Fujian. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
1: Um, you, uh, beyond all the books that you have written uh, from the scientific world for the psychologists and the scientific world, um, you have written uh, this new book. It's called Our Polyvagal World, How Safety and Trauma Changes Us. And um, I learned so much just go- by going through it. And I really appreciate it if we could um, share with our audience about this uh, you know, the concept of polyvagal nerve and what it does, and the importance of that. And mm. why is it important for us to look at that? And what is it that we could do to create that safety that you beautifully shared in the book?
0: Well, I'm actually going to separate the story into two parts. One, the writing of a book from a scientist's perspective. Some scientists, you know, love ideas, and they love to explore, and they love complication, you know, complexity. And they also kind of have a lifestyle that leads to great frustration just by nature of the profession. So for me, the greatest frustration that I have experienced in my life is to communicate what I have learned. So when you, in a sense, understand certain things that have impact on humanity and on life, you want to share it and you want to learn from others. But uh, the portal of communication is not what scientists are trained to do, nor are they normally comfortable in doing it. So they kind of like become more reclusive, which doesn't help translate ideas into practice. Okay, so that's the the first story. The second part of the story is, okay, writing a book, And in this book, what is the principle that I want to convey and with whom did I write this book with? The co-author is my son, who is a journalist and documentary filmmaker, uh, a very talented guy. And what was interesting in writing this book, all I could when I sat back, I said, how did he learn so much? I didn't teach him anything. How did he learn so much? No, because your children, you don't teach. The fact that he even had an interest in my work was almost a surprise. But the fact that he could come up with the vocabulary to describe this, that even I thought when I listened to the recordings, you know, I would write, I would read my book back through having it read to me. Uh, I said, that's my voice. You know, But you know, the, pe- the, the typing of the pencil was in his hand. The intru- the point was that he was able to take the voice and to enable the voice to be understandable to others. So what is the voice telling you? That's what the book is about. It's telling you that so much of our life is determined by the physiological state we're in. It's a dialectic that we need to come, basically come to uh, some type of of understanding with this internal battle, this dialectic, between our intentionality, how we think we would like to act and behave, and what our body really does. So when our body goes into reactivity, which we all have, we can get angry, we can get disappointed, we can be hurt. And then the world looks different to us, feels different to us. And polyvagal theory explains actually the mechanisms through through which that is occurring. Our body changes physiological state to support our defenses. And when our body goes into calm state, guess what happens? We become engaging, spontaneously social, we enjoy others, we become more optimistic. But what the secret that had not been shared with too many was that the physiological state that supports health growth and restoration is the same physiological state that supports sociality, co-regulation benevolence compassion the good stuff in life and yet we know that when we are quote stressed or anxious the good part of us is taking a vacation it, it's not literally given permission to express itself because the good part feels vulnerable and doesn't want to get hurt
1: yes my own experience had been that i had um, even since childhood when something would scare me um, and at times um, started like getting dizzy and I would faint. And I did mm. all of these different types of, yeah. um, you know, medical workup on me. It wasn't a seizure. They couldn't figure out what it was. And well, as I grew up, it didn't even need to necessarily be something that was scaring me. Um, I didn't know why these things were happening yeah. until I read uh, not this book, but before the other books that you had written. And it's like a light bulb. Even if the food came i would my my world because of abuse that i had as a child i would freeze yeah so even if i had food or even if i was in an environment that was too much and because i was kind of dissociating in a sense not catching it my body would go into the freeze and at one point i would Mm -hmm. just shut down and obviously i learned how to kind of like capture the concept and create safety Mm -hmm. for myself so I wouldn't fall down or even go through the whole fainting completely and it's really worked just to learn what my body will go through if I'm not feeling safe but as I was going through this book it was fascinating to me also because we've kind of by false have learned that we're either in a flight or freeze response, or, you know, we're, um, we're in a calm state. And, um, and then through the book, I, I was also learning that how all of these different um, ways also work together. So,
0: yeah.
1: so many variations, that, um for us to be in the society, you know, pl- how to, do we play or how, how does just the cooperativeness of the society can create safety for us, and where is it that we can utilize knowingly, awareingly being with our body, the different states and how we could work together and utilize the different states together versus just kind of automatically doing its work. So that piece was amazing for me.
0: Well, well, thank you. What we realized is one of the hidden agendas uh, of society is to make us numb, not to feel our body. You know, sit still, you know, keep working, work through it, power through it. All these things are really signals to our body not to listen to what the body is trying to tell us. And in a sense, from a neurophysiological level, we're dampening the feedback loops that help us stay healthy. And guess what? When you have a a life experience of severe trauma, your body tends to learn from that to be numb and that, then you start getting the complications. It's not merely that your memories are now blunted, you're not going back and reliving those experiences but your nervous system has been retuned and now it doesn't support health growth and restoration. So what does that mean? It means you get gut problems, you have fibromyalgia, you get irritable bowel, you express a lot of uh, anxiety symptoms. The body's in the state of defense. You become hypersensitive or hypervigilant. You don't trust people. And now we're describing really a good percentage of the world, right? And we're in a sense describing what we teach our children. We teach our children the world's not safe, you can't trust people, Uh, you have to always be on the alert. Now, what is that doing to our bodies? What does that allow our nervous system to do? Is it supporting our visceral health growth and restoration? And when that's served, guess what happens? We start having a higher level brain processes become available. So we're not focused on, is someone walking up behind me? Do I have to read, uh, interpret the facial expression of another? Or what was he saying behind my back? Our bodies become now exploratory and we start organizing on very creative levels. So if we stand back and ask this real question, what would we be like if we were safe enough to be who we are? Just a simple question like that. That we weren't worried about being evaluated, and we weren't worried about being punished, uh, the consequences. And now let's let's take that into the world we're in. Everything within our world is about evaluation. We go to a physician's; uh, it's all about being. We're given tests, and. And then when you look online to see what your tests were, is it like when you were in elementary school, they're passing out the papers? Your body's going through that same thing. Is the test now indicating something that's not positive? So our bodies get into this anticipatory feelings. So what has kind of happened is that even though some of these tests are really totally innocuous and the numbers don't mean very much, the anticipation of getting the results has this profound physiological effect on us. We're just, in a sense, little things mean a lot to us. And we can, so with our kids, we can't just say to them, oh, don't worry about it. It's not important. The body has been retuned and can't selectively say this is important and this is not important.
1: And, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist. I've, uh, I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I work a lot with couples and I work a lot with families and it. And I was reading your book and the concept of safety is so important mm. that, you know, when I sit down with, with a couple and see where the way they speak with each other takes away the safety for each other. And then what happens to the physiology of their body? And then obviously, you know, how that then turns into every other angle of their life and then. Of, you know their intimacy or in in parenting styles, you know how yeah. scaring your child in order not to do something or uh, in order to punish them, you know you do this with this yeah. conversation if you don't do this is what's going to happen to you and how much we take away safety as if if we're producing fear into the other person mm-hmm. we're gonna you know we're gonna hold them in 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 place and not necessarily knowing and understanding how much of these ways of conversing and relating to each other um, is damaging to the physiological aspects of each person and therefore relationships.
0: I think, you know, it's part of our culture. And so you say, what does the culture gain from it? Okay, so let's so on one side, you're saying what would be the ideal way that humanity could experience itself? Uh, when would it feel safe enough to trust? And if trust then becomes the basis for love. So we also have this whole, uh, uh, literally, uh, separation between love and trusting an individual. And in your profession, you're seeing that. Where love is some type of visceral connectiveness, but they don't trust each other. So now they're... They're they're in a conflict. Their body says something, their brain says something else, or so the high-level thoughts say something else. So we have this conflict, but let's get back to this point. What do we gain from the culture that we have we live in and that we support in different ways? You the culture gains what it used to call productivity meaning people move more rapidly. When productivity was movement-based, like an assembly line or a lever pull, uh, quote, anxiety or fight or flight or threat uh, uh, energizes our physiology through the sympathetic nervous system. It doesn't make us nicer people, but it makes us more active. And we see this in relationships. We see workaholics. Uh, We see it as with a moral or an ethical uh, veneer, saying they're hardworking, good people, and they're doing this for uh, their family, for their kids, for their wife. But what they're missing is what, actually, they're not asking the right, what is their family missing by not feeling safe or trusting them in this co-regulatory aspect? So let's kind of back out and back uh, rewind literally and say, what is our real responsibility as a human being? Is it to push levers, generate more income? Uh, of course, it's important to have enough to survive. I'm not arguing that fact that we need to have sufficient, but we're not a, a society that's figured out what is enough. You know, because we now use having enough as a motivating. I need more. Even the wealthy, the billionaires that we read about, they're not satisfied with being ranked number eight or nine or a hundred. They want to be the top billionaire. They're still under this evaluation. And it's obscene because the money is not going to change their quality of life.
1: Yes, but based on what you were saying, also from the culture, when you're looking at the media, television, mm. you know, single, what became, I mean, the news is, <gasps> and then, um, and then you know, also when you're looking at the television shows, it's all about you know murder mysteries and killing and police and and you know, um, and it's interesting that it's consistently feeding fear, and even the big buster mm-hmm. movies are all feeding fear and rage and anger mm-hmm. and letting go. And yeah. I think that's also our responsibility of how we're creating uh, a society that is also, like you said, is always uh, running on mm. a high level of, you know, octane of sympathetic yeah. responses. But,
0: but the gift of that, from their perspective, from uh, from that model is the human, whoever they're manipulating like this, is now more productive from their perspective. It's not a quality of life issue. It's a, a it's monetization, which is the world we're in. Can you get more out of it? And in a sense, it's a type of enslavement of the resources of a human and diverting those resources towards movement and pro, uh, hypothetically productivity and taking away from that equation trust, love, emergent creativity, exploration, uh, really complex problem solving where you can't be... Uh, jumping around the room, you got to think about it and project the ideas so your body has to be safe enough to give up the vigilance so you can now live in that visualization process, the creativity the creative process um, we, in a sense millennia, this is not new so the, and they're different my view is that the institutions of that humanity or civilization has structured have not been, let's use the term compassionate to the human experience. They've been really thinking of humans as a resource for something else. Um, and I think we, okay, as a species, we're smarter. I use the term claiming our evolutionary heritage. I think we evolved sufficiently to, in a sense, have this goal of feeling safe enough with others to experience this creativity, this trust. The interesting thing for me in my personal journey as a scientist who got literally invited into the world of psychotherapy. So I never view myself, I'm not a therapist, but I was very welcomed into this world because my theories and my ideas gave plausible explanations for the experiences that the therapists and their clients had. So what I feel is that we know enough of what our body needs, and we can literally restructure our environments to enable people to be safe enough. I think we have to always qualify. you have to be safe enough. This is not saying you just sit back and people feed you and deal things. Our nervous system likes variation. It likes challenges. It likes tasks. It likes solving problems. We're a curious species. We're a benevolent species as well, but we're not benevolent and we're not curious and we're not trusting when we're under severe threat. Then everything becomes proximal. I need to take care of myself. In your clinical practice, dealing with couples, you probably can see that right in front of your eyes where you can see literally people with great potential with great loving potential are really now like this saying, I need to take care of myself. And they can't, I use the word stop for a moment and actually understand what their body is doing and how it's signaling and triggering the other person's body to do the same thing.
1: Absolutely. One of the other things that I really saw, um, to me, and it brought a smile to my face, was this concentration on play that is uh, in your book that it yeah. brought it it also shares that, oh, it takes the dynamic of, you know, fight and then the freeze. Yeah. And it brings all of this together and mm. it brings it into play and it brings it into like the intimacy and sexuality. yeah it's yeah, it's another way of play. And you know the cooperativeness in, into a play form where not only you're active and you're challenging and you're competitive and you know you have all of that, but you also have this essence of openness and mm. uh, you know the collaboration that happens in play. And play creates safety for us.
0: Play is again a word that has been totally co-opted by commercial interests. So you start getting video games to play without, in a sense, the dynamic human interaction of face-to-face and reading other people's gestures. Uh, You can go to a playground and you can see which children are excluded from play versus those that are engaged. Those that are excluded are not reciprocal. They literally uh, are on their own. They want to play, but they may actually be hurtful to the people around. They can hurt them. Play is not without vulnerabilities. The interesting thing about play and is that, uh, and being playful is so you can see it in the face and the gestures and in the voice. And that's very polyvagal. It means that this newer mammalian ventral vagal circuit is literally riding or constraining or choreograph- choreographing the sympathetic fight flight. So you're mobilizing with play with facial expressivity. And you can watch when that falls apart. I actually used to show videos of professional basketball players where one knocked a person down and then walked away without reaching down or saying, are you okay? That elicited a fight. But for all of us who have played a little bit of semi-contact sports, you get hit. And it's what happens after you get hit that determines whether it's the body reacts to it as an aggressive act or as an accident. So if the person turns and says, I'm sorry, even what I used to say is even if you have a compound fracture, you'd respond back and say, yeah, it's part of the game, you know, because that's how we respond. But if the person literally pushes us or makes contact, not painful and walks away, we feel we feel. Uh, basically, an affront. I use the term biological rudeness, and that is something as simple as you're talking to me, and as you engage to talk to me, I just kind of do this, you know, or pull out my phone, uh, which is very common in today's culture. And what is your visceral response? And what is the narrative that you build uh, if I, bec- in a sense, become disinterested as a university professor? I would see this all the time. And it was very interesting to me. I had a very close colleague who was a blind mathematician. He was literally uh, my best friend for uh, over a decade until he died. And I used to walk with him through the math building. He'd have his hand on my arm. And his colleagues were walking, holding their books in front of their eyes and walked right into it multiple times. And it, it just highlighted for me the world that I was in as an academic, and that is, there are a lot of spectrum behaviors. It doesn't make the person's intentions bad, but it means that the signals that they are basically broadcasting are not signals that calm the other person down.
1: Yes. So the other side of it is, if I can't change the world from that perspective and I don't have necessarily control over the world, but I do have control over me and how I take in the stimuli, how I perceive it, how I take care of myself. What are some of the ways that I can create safety for myself in the world that may produce a lot of fear in the world that might not be caring for me. And they have their books in front of them and they're walking through me anyway. Um, what are the ways that I can uh do that? And beautifully you've talked about it's not the safety itself, it's the perception of the safety. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, can you share a little bit
0: about Yeah. That? When I okay the first part is the kind of this awareness of our own body. How do we feel? And we start off by talking about the histories of trauma, a little bit of numbness, a society that tells us not to feel. But we have to become aware of our bodily feelings. We have to literally become aware of them uh, so that we don't use that bodily feeling to generate a narrative that justifies being aggressive. And again, within your family or couples counseling, you can see that where a person will get upset. And once they get upset, it gives them the energy and the justification for being aggressive back. And then it just flows out. So we have to be aware. And so we have to acknowledge that we react to stimuli, we react to people's voices, their facial expression, their actions. But we can't make an interpretation until we're aware of what the signal did to our body. And this is the toughest part, is to stop the stimulus response linkage to make it a stimulus organismic state Uh, response model, because the organismic state, our physiological state, is in between the stimulus and our response. And we have to understand that, and that's through a process called interoception. We are very sensitive and reliable in terms of of detecting bodily feelings. The problem is that once we detect them, it immediately triggers these higher brain structures that make excuses, create a narrative, and that is, you intentionally hurt me and I'm angry at you. And it doesn't matter. It that's that's where it starts, as opposed to say, you know, when you look at me that way, I get a bodily feeling. I just wanted to share that with you. Now I'm not saying that's gonna solve the problem, but at least it's slowing you up from reacting. And so the the part that we live in, we live in a world where people believe that the words are everything. And you can really understand that for some people, it doesn't matter what they say, you still like them, even though you don't agree with them, you like them, because their voices are melodic, they feel charming to you, you want to know them. But other people, they give you the right information, and you don't want to have anything to do with them.
1: Yes. So part of what I'm hearing from you is like, um, if I get it, that I'm owning my assumptions, right? I yeah. created that psychology model it's called awareness, integration, where you yeah. have the awareness and part of the phase of looking at is not only that I own how I think and feel and
0: yeah. think
1: toward others, but I also own the assumptions that I'm consistently yeah. based on what you just also said that, you know, assigning intentions to people mm. uh, from my own perspective and, Uh, What I'm hearing from you is, as that awareness happens, then I can create a filter right before the response. That in that filter, not only that I can take responsibility, but I can take care of my body and what state.
0: So, in my thinking, as I've been saying, is that the stimulus-response model or cause and effect model is useful, but there's a better model that is the acknowledgement that there's something in between our physiological state. Now, I found only recently, uh, Victor Frankl, and you're familiar with Victor Frankl's work, uh, that he made the statement that it goes something like this, somewhere between the stimulus and the response is a space, and in that space is freedom of choice. It's a beautiful, it's what you're doing. You're saying if you can stop and become aware of that reaction within your body, what I was calling interoception, you have the option of having uh, basically free thought. You can make those decisions as opposed to being caught in a cause and effect reactivity model.
1: Right. And uh, based on some of the things that I read in your book, also that the movement in going toward meditation and mindfulness and all of that really helps to uh, promote that uh, space in the middle where then we could do something for ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's really a good point, because we know enough about how to manipulate that space. One of them, of course, is breathing, Mm -hmm. slow exhalations, increase the vagal or calming aspect. Uh, we know that where we start that playfulness and movement enable the sympathetic nervous system not to be a problem because it's already contained with the friendship and the relationship with others so i actually started thinking because i talked a couple days ago to uh, play therapists and as i was talking to the play therapist i was reminded about Movement, dance movement therapy and I think dance movement play all these therapies they they have a secret that has not percolated all the way into more traditional psychotherapy is that is if you work with people moving it's actually easier Their their bodies are already literally think of it this way their bodies are already moving and they bring the social engagement onto it so they're not in fight or flight but If things get dangerous, they're one step away from out the door so they don't have to, in a sense, get up and move. The body already knows that if you're moving in play or dance, it's easier to defend than if I'm seated in a chair.
1: Yes. After I was reading your book, also I had a client who the couple were um, having conversations with each other and really activating each other. And I actually um, um, asked them, "Next time you want to talk, can you take a walk together?" And talk? yeah, because the uh, the concept of just walking side by mm. side together, uh, you know, it does have the concept of we're collaborating. There's a together, mm. and yet there's a movement when this. You know, anger shows up, and they wanted to release it somehow with the movement. It was getting released versus just sitting together and going <laughs> at each other.
0: <laughs> well, when people do that, I wonder, uh, do they actually think someone's going to win that argument? Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. Is someone out there watching in it, some um, Uber space uh, uh, it, when they're trying to make points? When the person can even process what they're saying? I mean. The point I often make is, have you ever won an argument? Because once you're in an argument in terms of a physiological state, it's not a dialogue, it's something else.
1: Yeah, there's a proving uh, factor that shows up and it's like, I'm going to stay here and keep punching and punching and punching just to prove so that I don't get punched back in a sense. Hmm. Um, And it would. I think that the concept of the, uh, the opening, the eye-opening um, concept for me, and I and I've been in the world of therapy for 30 years, but the beauty of how you and your son in this book have simplified mm-hmm. a very complex concept of stating that this is your physiology, the physiology is going to take over automatically in order to uh, make you survive however a lot of times it's that the survival based construct is unnecessary there's really nothing to survive like if you're supposed to survive you do it and (laughs) let go and release and you're done but if a lot of times we are caught during the day In spaces that we're really not necessarily having to survive, but we pretend we have to survive Mm -hmm. for the... yeah, the, the the pressure that kind of consistently lies in our body and it doesn't get released because, like animals, they go through the stress of surviving and then they find a place to release, they find the place to play together, you know, and rest. And we we don't allow ourselves to do that anymore, even in relatedness. And how to one acknowledge that and then uh create safety, the perception mm. of safety with all of those for it for ourselves concept of safety is something that if people if you know our audience can keep hearing that we are responsible to create safety for ourselves, and we are responsible to create safety for people who are around us in our community
0: yeah that okay for me i learned so much from the world of trauma from those whose lives have been almost um basically it's hard to believe they survived those experiences because they have not lost this dream of feeling safe enough to be in the arms of another. I mean, they taught me really what it is to be a human and what they have lost from their own experiences. But those that loss did not remove their motivation to recover it. That's the interesting part. The dream, the visualization, even if you have no historical experience of being safe enough with another, you still have a dream of having that relationship. And that has taught me so much about what it is to be a human and how with that, literally that template, how we can engage it. Now, the issues of safety are not, okay, it's not a optional, it's an obligatory feature of what it is to stay alive as a human being. And the part that we have forgotten is that certain signals are wired into our nervous system to enable us to feel safe. We see this with babies, when a mother calms a baby, how? With a voice that has intonation, she doesn't yell at the baby and the baby calms down. How do we calm our pets? Same way with our voices. So we start learning that there's certain types of signals, facial expressions, gestures, intonation of voice that our nervous system literally can't refuse but to respond to. And that is really wired in to this, this whole circuit that I call the social engagement circuit that is linked to our viscera, linked to how we calm down. So not only do we, when our bodily state's more mobilized or in a fight-flight, does our face change its muscles? It looks different. Does our voice change? Yes. And when a person hears our voice and sees our face, does their physiology change? Yes. Now, if someone... Understands that and doesn't respond in kind, but now starts using a calmer, more melodic voice, sending signals of safety. What happens to the other person? Well, they're like the dog or the kitten or the baby. They start to calm down because their body uh, is now processing those cues.
1: Different way. Well, everyone, please get the book our polyvagal world, how safety and trauma changes us. Um, anything we haven't shared that you really want people to know?
0: Well, I want people to realize that we have the resource in our nervous system to uh, be a compassionate, be a co-regulatory and be a safe uh, species, it's there. We just have to be safe enough to allow these features to express themselves. And in saying that, we have to also understand that when we don't express those things, when our is really serving these more foundational survival needs with these survival, foundational survival circuits, it's not bad, it's survival. And at times we need to start using top-down visualizations of what our body is doing to help those bottom-up defensive reactions to literally self-soothe and calm. So we're species that evolved to co-regulate. But our ability to self-regulate is often quite challenged by our environment and by our experiences. So we need trusting relationships, at least a few in our lives. And when we don't have them at the moment, we can have visualizations of ones that we have had. And this keeps a lot of people really regulated, is the visualization of loved ones and very positive experiences.
1: And one of the studies that came out, I'm sure you've heard of the Harvard 100-year study of well-being. And um, um, all of that says also that the only way that we're fulfilled and happy is having these amazing relationships, yeah. and relationships to the people around us. And the concept of safety that you're talking about is the most important factor within those relationships.
0: You're bringing up a very important point, and I kind of call it social nourishment. And that is the neural exercise of using our facial muscles, our voices in this interaction. And that's why play has always been important with children, because there was a lot of face-to-face historically and reciprocal behaviors. Each time we have this reciprocity, this co-regulatory behavior, we're enhancing our nervous system. Uh, I'll just reflect back on, I use, often show a picture of two kittens playing. And when I was in graduate school, I was told they're practicing their hunting skills. Well, only, I would say, within the last 15 years, I re-looked at the pictures and realized their claws are retracted. They're not breaking skin. They're playing, and they're maintaining face-to-face all the time. So they're doing bites and looking at each other to make sure it's not aggressive. It's really beautiful to watch the play. Dogs do the same thing. They chase each other. They catch the rear leg. They look back at the face to face to get an acknowledgement that it's not aggressive. It's play, but it's movement. And they, you know, they're using their teeth.
1: Yes. Yes. And again, like finishing your book, it was more than anything a state for me is play, play, play. This words keep coming yeah. back to me is how you could create safety and and um a way of connecting that mm-hmm. is fun that it creates the safety, but also has movement. You know, sometimes you just think, okay, I just have to sit here in a meditative state only to create this. And not many people, you know, people with high energy, they can't just sit there and do meditation today to create safety for themselves. And that was the key, which is for people who work the meditation and sometimes during the day. But the rest of it, even in the most Mm -hmm. serious concept, to take on the concept of a playfulness with it automatically brings the safety and it, it almost like generates mm-hmm. um, you know, the the flourishment of a safety from us mm-hmm. and then shares it with the world.
0: I'm I'm gonna share one other aspect. That's very similar to what you're saying, and that is social eating, eating in a social context, because the system of eating ingestion, not digestion, but ingestion uses all the same nerves that we use for social interaction. So you prime the system. In fact, we do that. Let's go out for a drink. Let's get a snack. You're priming the social system but with ingestion. It's really beautiful. And even like if you start thinking about people who have eating disorders, you start realizing they're not eating in a social context. And I wanted to create what I called an eating club for people with eating disorders. And that is they could eat whatever they wanted as long as they were on a Zoom uh, with other people, that there was a social context. And I really I have not done that, but I really invite other therapists to do those things. But I would imagine the need to eat to calm down through taking food in is going to be displaced through the social interaction.
1: It has been such a joy to have you. I've met you in uh, the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, which was in Orlando, December. And I just wish that I could have you on my podcast. And my wish came through. So it is truly a joy and an honor to have you. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much for inviting me and spending the time with me.
1: Of course. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and for everyone around you. Take care of yourself, and until next week,
0: bye. Eliminate stress, reduce anxiety, and decrease depression. Dr. Fujan Zane's awareness integration theory has helped thousands like you get incredible life changing results. The Fujan app gives you her evidence based treatment in the palm of your hand. Download today.